This morning we're going back to Isaiah 53. As you can see, the communion table is set before us. And, and uh, my habit, my desire is to share with you from Isaiah 53 as we prepare our hearts to participate in this service today. I remind you of this practically every time. I wrote it down so I would anyway. That our communion service uh, has two basic statements that goes with it. One, we are very familiar with this, but each time we uh, remember this table, we remember that it's because of our great sin that the Lord has done this. And that is a very sobering side of the communion service, isn't it? To know that it was our sin that brought upon the death of Christ. But the other side of that is how great is His mercy. And uh, I love that theme. How great is His mercy. He told us to remember Him. That's what He said. Remember me. Uh, Often He would mention that to His disciples on that night. And I'd still wonder, how are we supposed to forget? How could we forget when He has done so much for us? And yet, this is what we have set up this table for, that we might remember Him. And we will do that again here this morning. But I want to set your heart together uh, in Isaiah 53 and bring us back to our appreciation again of why we remember Him. We've been working our way pieces, uh, piece by piece in Isaiah 53 here. So far, we have uh, brought us six times into this passage. This is number seven. If you want to catch up on the other six, they are now posted on our website. Uh, I put all six of those on yesterday, so you can catch up on the other ones. That goes back to 2011 is the first one, and I couldn't even remember the date when we had that. But uh, um, the first time we, we address this passage, we address the fact that we are sinful and we deserve God's wrath. That's evident in the words. Uh, second time we looked at it, we discussed the fact that we are rebellious and refuse to listen to God's truth. Also in this passage. The third time we came into it, we mentioned that Christ came into this spiritually barren, morally depraved world. And what a wonder that is, that He would come. But He did. Fourth time we looked at it, we see very clearly in this passage as well that Christ took our sin and our punishment. We're thankful for that. The fifth time we entered into this, we saw that Christ not only took our sin and punishment, He also took our ridicule and abuse. Last time we looked at it, we noticed that Christ's death satisfied our need, and His need, and the Father's need too. Now today, our uh, topic is that some will believe the message. Some will believe the message. Now, just by the implication of that word, some, it means that some will not. Right? Some will believe the message. Start in verse number 1. Who has believed our message? Isaiah begins. Who? Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's our topic today. That's what we're going to discuss This morning, who has believed? We're match up with verse number 10. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. 
if he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his day. And the, Lord, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Those are our three verses today. Heavenly Father, we have your word open in front of us again, and thank you, Lord, for it. Thank you for drawing our attention to the cross of Christ, our remembrance of what he has done for us, and the words that uh, we will hear today. Challenge us with it, we pray, Lord, and draw us close to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah almost sounds like he's, uh, he's exasperated here. Who has believed our message? He has worked his way through writing this, uh, this prophecy. 52 chapters. Probably this has been on his heart the whole time. Who's going to believe? Who's going to believe? What a struggle. He knew that in chapter number 1. Matter of fact, God told him in chapter number 6 what to expect. He says, well, they're not going to believe you. (laughs) Well, in chapter number 1, he gives you a portrayal of the folks he is talking to. I want you to go back there for a minute. Chapter number 1 of Isaiah, verse number 3. It's right away in the book. He says this. Well, I'll back up to verse number 2, because it starts the dialogue here. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows his owner. A donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation... People weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. What a way to start a letter. They've despised, they've walked away from Him. They've abandoned Him. What have they done? Well, between verse number 4 and verse number 16, where the Lord pleads with them. And verse 18, where the Lord pleads with them. They, they, since they've cast off the Lord, they replace Him with other things. And, and what they basically show is that they carry on with their religion. They carry on with their sacrifices. They carry on with their attendance to the tabernacle or the temple at this time. They, they, they bring their sacrifices over and over again. They, they sing the same songs they've sung all their lives. They, they carry on as if nothing has changed. They go through the feast still. They go through the festival still. They probably even go through the fast still. But their hearts are not right. They've replaced that relationship with the Lord with a ritual. They thought, well, that's all the Lord really wants anyway. That's all He really wants from us is ritual, right? That's the way they live. Their heart's not right with Him. And, and when you get down to verse number 16, Isaiah yells out almost, Wash yourselves! Make yourselves clean! Remove the evil from your deeds, of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil! Learn to do good! 
Seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphans, plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Can you hear it? Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. What an invitation to those who have abandoned him and who have replaced all that relationship with a ritual. Come now. There's, there's a plea in that little phrase. And, and it, it's actually brought up in three different ways in, in the definition of the word. To plea. Can you, can you picture this? God is pleading for the sinner to come to him. It should be the sinner pleading with God to forgive him. But this is God calling out. He's pleading with them. Pleading with them. We're told in, in 2 Corinthians, the ministry that you and I have, as believers in Christ, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were entreating through us. And He is. And we beg, we keep on begging, Paul says, we keep on begging you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Because it is necessary, it is, it is needed, it must be done. And that's a word that God uses here toward his people. He's pleading with them that they might come. He, he calls for them to make a decision. That's the idea, the second idea of this pleading, make a decision. You remember Joshua, when he walked his people into the promised land and they spent 30 years uh, mowing down the Canaanites and moving them out of the land to possess it. And, and when they got to a place toward the end of Joshua's life there, he speaks to the people. Now, this is a man who has set before them a godly example, who has taught them how to trust the Lord, they had seen the evidence of it all around them because the Lord has done exactly what He promised to do to lead them into the land and give them victory. So, I mean, it's almost like you don't even need to preach this sermon. They knew everything they needed to know about the Lord. But when Joshua is speaking to them, listen to these words, and you've heard these before. Some of you even have a portion of this somewhere on a poster or a plaque in your house. This is Joshua. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Do you know what he's still contending with? They still have idols after all that. Yes. They still have them there. He says, put them away. And if it's disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord... Choose for yourself today who you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're now living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Isn't it a shame that he has to start with that in this message to them? After all they've seen and all they've known? He's got to address that. He, he calls for them to make a decision. In the New Testament, it's no different. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. God still pleads. Still pleads. Another side of this, not just the pleading and calling for a decision, but God says, prove me. 
prove me. And that's the nature of this word as well. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is a man who trusts in him. He who believes in him will never be disappointed. How are you going to know the Lord unless you trust him? And he calls for them to do that. Trust me. This is Isaiah's place as he begins his, his letter to those people. Who will believe our message? Years ago, I recall a church that decided that they were going to use a, uh, a technique to get more people into their service on Sunday. Their goal was to have a large crowd. So they advertised they were giving $10 bills to everyone who came in the church building. $10 bills to everyone who came in the church building. Well, they turned around and said, you know, we have a record attendance that day. You surprised? They also had a record offering that day. Guess what the plate was full of? $10 bills. Well, not quite as many as they gave out. But what was the goal? Large group? What was the goal? Large offering? What's the desire in all this? Have you ever just held a, a dime or a nickel in your hand? Just looked at it, felt it. Doesn't amount to a whole lot, does it? Not in our day and age, of course. We, we talk about uh, the value of money. We see how it goes up and it goes down and, and things of that nature. When you read God's Word, have you ever seen Him offer you money to come and worship Him? Has He ever offered you a rebate of some kind if you should serve Him? A company car? The Lord does not need to bribe you for His love, does He? That you should serve Him. Does He have to entice you with temporary things like silver or gold to get you to come and worship Him? We're not redeemed, Peter says, with silver or gold, perishable things, as a little silver thing, that's the Greek, a little gold thing. We're not redeemed with those kind of things, are we? Is your life comparable is your soul the value of a dime? A silver thing? Not even silver anymore, is it? A piece of metal? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Some people, $10 bills. Some people, large attendances. Some people, big offerings. What is the value of the blood of Christ? The precious blood of Christ. Facts are these. We are sinful, right? No doubt about it. We are rebellious. Christ came to this world where we are. Christ came here. He took up our sins. He died in our place. You can write above Isaiah 53 two words. For you. Because that sums up the whole reason for this chapter. And for the death of our Savior. It's for you. So that big question starts this letter. 
this chapter. Who has believed our message? Who has believed it? That's a good question. You see, my goal is not to play with emotions, to bribe you in any way, not to, to entice you to, to raise attendance figures, to just gain new members, even to the point of putting a notch on my Bible and say, hey, I brought somebody else to the Lord. You know, like the old Western guys used to put notches on their guns, right? Some people have many goals for sharing the gospel. This is a simple invitation this morning. A simple one. Straightforward as it can be. The greatest gift ever is offered to you. The greatest gift ever is offered to you. No category of gift can compare with the free gift that God gave to us when He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should have everlasting life. That's what God has done for us. That's what we see. That's what we're told to remember. That is the message. And the question is, who's going to believe it? Who's going to believe that message? We're going to return to verse number 1 in just a minute. But jump down to verse 10 and 11 before we get too far away from this. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, notice the next phrase, he will see his offspring. You know, that's a promise God made to his son. You give your life. I will bring about the results. You will see the results of what you have done. You will see your offspring. Don't think for a moment that the stubbornness of our present world or the stubbornness of Israel in their day has any reflection on the fact that God is limited here. God will bring about those who will believe. We could stand in opposition to Him and refuse to acknowledge Him, but Christ will bear fruit. It's guaranteed. It will happen. God will bring fruit through this because His death was not in vain. It was not in vain. So being stubborn isn't, isn't going to stop a thing God's doing. Having a rebellious heart, that won't change a thing either. In John chapter 1, I'll read to you a couple of passages. You're welcome to join me if you like there. John chapter 1. Keep a bookmark here. To these same people, generations later, Jesus Christ came. He came to his own. Verse number 10. He was in the world. The world was made through him. And the world did not know Him. Isn't that amazing? He's in the world He created. And the world doesn't even recognize Him. Doesn't recognize Him. That's, that's sad. But verse 11 is, is worse. He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. They did not recognize Him? They did not receive him. They did not receive him. He said, well, I guess it didn't work, did it? 
Verse 12. But as many as received him. See, some do, don't they? As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Who were born, not of blood, not of the will of men, nor of the will, or not of the flesh, will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, nor of ten dollars in an offering plate, not church attendance, not ritual. How long could we add to this list? They were born of God. Those who received Him, those who believed in His name, they're born of God. Some will believe. Oh, what a refreshing thing just to hear that. Some will believe. When it looks as though nobody wants to, nobody will, the stubbornness of man stands up and they don't recognize Him, they don't receive Him, some will believe. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us? That we should be called children of God? And such we are. What a blessing it is to say those words. To hear those words. I'm going to set before you the major point of what I believe is being expressed here in Isaiah 53. Just two, two aspects of it. In the fact that verse number 10, God says, He will see His offspring. And in verse number 11, he says, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. My servant will justify the many. Those phrases say something very strongly in our presence here. God is sovereign in salvation. Man is stubborn. God is sovereign. This is a very important principle for us to understand. God is sovereign. I'm going to show you some things here this morning. I want you to hang on tight, alright? If you were still in John, maybe you dropped your place like I just did. Go back to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Work your way over to verse 37. Look again at salvation from God's side. It says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. See those phrases? All that the Father gives me. Stop just with that phrase. All that the Father gives me. It's more in salvation, it's more than just what the Father has given you. I mean, we've been given everything, haven't we? In our salvation, we've been given everything. But there's more to it than that. Sometimes we think that we're the gift that God got. <laughs> we're the whole gift. I mean, boy, did that make his day. Yes, he rejoices. The angels rejoice. That's true. He loves you. But realize this. In salvation, God gave you to his Son. That's what it says, doesn't it? Look at it again. All that the Father gives me. The Father, who is me? Jesus Christ. So you are a gift from the Father 
to His Son. Wow! Think of that for a minute. Jesus makes a promise about that. He says in verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. You see the promise that goes with it? All that the Father gives me will come to me. I don't see a question mark there, do you? you see a maybe? No, I, I don't see that either. And then he goes on to say, in these words, I will keep them. No one gets away. He says, I will certainly not cast them out. All who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. So he's going to receive the gift from his Father. As each one is given to him, the Son receives them. They are precious to him. They are precious. Verse 39 shows you, This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose none, but raise it up on the last day. So they are precious to him, and they will be raised up with him on the last day. No one will slip through the cracks. The Father's gift to the Son is perfect. Wouldn't you agree with that? He always gives perfect gifts. The Son receives the gift, not partially, but entirely. Every single individual that the Father has given to the Son, the Son possesses. He has them. He keeps them. And in the end, He will present them. How many? All of them. Isn't it a powerful passage? Oh, boy, is this a powerful passage. But this is what He says as well. Verse 44. No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Now, if we wanted to stand back for a few minutes and say, alright, so, how sovereign is God in salvation? Listen to the words again. Who gave who? To whom? The Father gave to His Son... Those who would believe, right? How many does the Son keep? All of them. How many does He lose? None of them. How many is He going to raise up on the last day? All of them. How do they get there? The Father draws them. See the picture? Woo, that's heavy stuff. We use big words like that in, in Bible college. Election, predestination, security of the believer. I was told very early in my life not to believe any part of that. Sad to say, I was told that. Don't believe a single part of that. Because if you believe one part, you've got to believe it all. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Why? Because this is what Scripture is teaching us. Now, I'm not wrestling with somebody's theology this morning. I'm wrestling with a sovereign God who stands before us and says, This is how I do it. Now, either he is God or he is not. Right? We see these words and we say, either they're true or they're not true. Now, if he is God, then this is his salvation message. This isn't mine. I didn't write it. I read it to you. It's his book. He carries the power. It's not my power. I can't save a single person. Can you believe that? Not me. I can't do it. He can. 
These are His words and not my words. It's based on His existence, not on mine. I could be here today and gone tomorrow. I'm not doing that, okay? Relax. I could be here today and gone. But God's Word doesn't disappear. God's power doesn't disappear. God's plans don't disappear. Long after we're off the scene, God is still at work. He's drawing men to His Son. Giving them to His Son. I like this quote very much. Charles Spurgeon wrote this in his book called The Soul Winner. It's a chapter dealing with how to deliver the message uh, and all that pertains to it. He says, A far greater work must be done before a man can be saved. A wonder of divine grace must be wrought upon the soul, far transcending anything which can be accomplished by the power of man. Of all whom we would with pleasure win for Jesus, it is true, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit must work regeneration in the objects of our love, or they will never and can never become possessors of eternal happiness. They must be quickened into a new life, they must become new creatures in Christ Jesus. The same energy which accomplishes resurrections and creation must put forth all its power upon them. Nothing short of this can meet the case. They must be born again from above. That's true. Now, that doesn't excuse us for speaking about Christ, you know. That doesn't say, well, salvation is God's work. He's sovereign in it, so I don't need to say a word. That's not true. Absolutely not true. What has He left us on this earth to do? Go. Go, therefore, into all these nations. Preach the gospel. We're told to go. But we go with the understanding. We can't save anyone. We couldn't even save ourselves. How could we save somebody else? Only God can do this work. And He will do it in His time and in His plan. He's already established that. You see, we don't have to set up an atmosphere for God to be favorable. We don't have to work and manipulate and arrange things so that people will think, wow, God's pretty generous today. Maybe He'll save me. We don't need to manipulate things to bring that about. God doesn't need that to save a soul. He does not. One of my favorite stories of, of Charles Spurgeon was when they were building the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Just a beautiful structure he was to speak in. And large, large building. He went in one day, as they're still working on it, and thought he'd test the acoustics. You know, they didn't have microphones and clip-ons and things like that to talk through. So he just walks up on the platform and he declares, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world! And he says, Sounds good. Walks out the door. He didn't realize that the man up in the rafters working up there, God had been working on his heart. And at that moment, he came to realize that Christ died for him and he accepted Christ as a Savior. Testing acoustics. Speaking God's Word. God had done the work, didn't He? God changed the man's heart. How many times do we take credit for what God has already done? Simple point here. I state it, and I state it again. God is sovereign in salvation. He says in Isaiah, He will see His offspring, right? He will see it. 
By his own knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. He will bear their iniquities. He will do it. He will justify. I worked with the Awana clubs. We had the definition of justify as God declaring a guilty sinner not guilty because of what Christ did on the cross. How do you like to wear that title? Not guilty. That's justified. Who does that? God does. God justifies. Those who believe are justified. There's nothing we could add to that. Nothing we can lose from that. As sure as a fact that it was planned before the foundation of the world. And Ephesians 1 and 2 will tell you so. And that you're seated in the heavenlies. Already recorded as far as God is concerned. God is sovereign in your justification. He did it. He did it. That's just incredible point number one. Incredible point number two is how merciful He is to us. How merciful He is to us that He should do this for us. That He would want to justify us when we really probably better resemble that worm that's you know, scooting across the ground needs to be stepped on. The other day when it got up to about 108 degrees or whatever that was, I don't know, a couple of beetles thought they'd race across the driveway. They didn't make it. They're all laying on their backs with their legs up in the air, fried, you know. And I'm thinking, how much, how much greater are we than they? We go running across the course of our life and think, well, you know, I, I, I'm going to make it. I'm going to do just fine on my own. That's not true. God is so merciful, isn't He? When we deserve His wrath, when we deserve to be cast out forever, when we deserve these things, God takes all that we deserve and lays it on His Son. He was pleased to crush Him. Awesome thought, isn't it? Go back to Isaiah with me. Isaiah 53. You have your place there, I hope. I didn't, so I've got to keep looking for it. Isaiah 53. He justifies us. Verse number 11. My servant will justify the many. Now, by this time, maybe you're starting to think, okay, Pastor, you're talking about the sovereignty of God, you're talking about the way He saves us and all. Where's my free will? Hey, folks, I've got one too. You know what? It's never done me any good. Isaiah 53 tells me exactly what my free will is defined as. Verse number 6. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we turned everyone to his own way. That's me. That's what a free will would do for you. Oh, sure, we got him. (laughs) But is our will greater than his? No. Matter of fact, our will is just like everybody else's. It wants to run the opposite direction. Do it my way. Do it my way. Thankfully, God is merciful. Thankfully, He is merciful. And He would justify the many. There's a beautiful song. I think it might be one of my favorites. uh, James Gray, former president of Moody Bible Institute. I mean, way long time ago. James Gray wrote a song, Only a Sinner Saved by Grace. This is my story, to God be the glory. I'm only a sinner, saved by grace. Precious little number. 
But that's where we stand. Totally depraved. Yes, I believe that. Totally dead in our sins. You can't, how do you say that? Totally dead. You can't be partially dead, can you? You guys in the medical field, you know that. Totally dead in our sins. That just sounds more, more dead than dead, doesn't it? Totally dead in sins. Scripture says we walked about in our sins. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Totally defiant to a holy God. That's exactly what we are. And yet he sought to justify me. He sought to justify you. That's what he did. Can you think of a better word than mercy? It's a beautiful word, isn't it? That he should extend that to us. Romans 8 tells us, not only those he called, but also he justified. He called and he justified. Now let me tell you what you can do about that. Romans chapter 10. This is right on the heels of God saying, he calls, he justifies, he sanctifies, he glorifies us. He does all those things. And then Romans 10, he starts in verse number 9 with these words. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's not contradictory to the work of God. That's exactly the work of God. For if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches to all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? Doesn't this sound like Isaiah shouting out again? Who's going to believe? How are they here without a preacher? How are they preach unless they are sent? You know what? If you keep this argument going, it's going to take you right to the throne of God. Who initiated all this? Who brought it about? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of great things. Pretty feet, right? You ever think about it? However, they did not all hear the good, heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Who has believed? If you go through there, you're going to see whoever is all over the place. Whoever's are everywhere. Scripture is full of whoever's. That's the big question of Isaiah. Who? Who's going to believe? Whoever will call, whoever will believe, whoever will receive. That's no contradiction in God's sovereign calling, or have you know, or man's need to believe. There's no contradiction here at all. I know Moody said this, and it's been repeated by a lot since uh, it was stated, and maybe Moody wasn't original with it either. But he says there's a sign at the entrance of heaven. One side of it, as you're entering in, it says, Whosoever will, may come. And as you walk into that place and look back, you'll see the reverse side of the sign saying, saved from the foundation of the earth. 
says there's no contradiction in the thought. What do you put together here? Simple phrases. God is sovereign. He tells his son, you die and the seed will come. The result will come. They will be justified. God has made those words clear and he's brought it about. There you are. The result of God's work. Yet God opens wide in His sovereignty. He opens wide the gates of heaven. And He says, whosoever will come, come! He can handle that too. That shows you how sovereign He is. That He can invite, as He does. Everyone who's thirsty, Isaiah would later say, come! Everyone who's hungry, come! Everyone who needs this, come! The invitation's all over Scripture. Come! Then probably the most famous verse of all in John 3.16. Whosoever will believe, whosoever will believe, will have eternal life and will not perish. Now I said all this before you this morning because the fact is some will believe the message. That's what the whole point is of Isaiah 53 of what Christ has done. Some will believe. Some some will not. And you're one or the other. Right? You can't be both. You either believe or you don't believe. You've rather you've received or you haven't received. You've been drawn or you haven't been drawn. You know him or you don't know him. You've been justified or you haven't been justified. One or the other. You know what the pastor desires for you? That you know him. That you know Him. That you have recognized Him. That you have received Him. That you are lifted among those who have been justified. That you are some who the Lord has brought about to His Son. That's my desire more than anything. That's a free gift of God. I don't embellish it one bit. It's just the way He wrote it. I talked to you this morning because we're about to take place uh, take our part again at this table, this communion table, and we're going to remember what Christ has done for us. Do you know He did this for you? Do you know that? Have you received Him as your Savior? I'm going to plead with you that until I can't talk again. Alright? That, that doesn't mean all day long I'm going. I'm saying, every chance I get, I want you to know how much the Savior loves you. And what He's done to redeem your life. And his call is for you to receive it. Years ago, there was a, a man I knew, grandfather he, uh, of a family. His children pleaded with him with the gospel message. His grandchildren pleaded with him with the gospel message. He would not believe. He just would not believe. He just told them, I, I won't believe that. So I was asked one day to come over and visit with him. And they said, we really, really want him to hear the gospel message again. And I said, okay, I'll come over. It just happened to be real near to Christmas time. I walked into there and I sat in the room with him and his granddaughter was there. And, and we were talking about the gift of salvation. And I pointed over there. There was a you know Christmas tree with gifts underneath it. And I said, can you imagine if somebody made a gift for you and, and put your name on the tag and set it under that tree? 
Christmas Day came and went, and you never picked it up. Is it still yours? Well, it's got my name on it. But have you taken it? No? So it sits there. They put down the tree. They put away the decorations. They march on through the month of January into February, Valentine's Day. You look over there and guess what's still sitting there? A present with your name on it. Have you taken it yet? No? Is it yours? Guess not yet. March through the seasons. You head up for 4th of July, summertime. Guess what's still sitting over there? There's a gift. Got your name on it. But you still haven't taken it. Next year, they're going to set up the tree. They're probably going to put it right up above that present again. And there's your gift with your name on it, but you haven't received it. He didn't receive it that day either. His granddaughter got this great idea. She made a box, wrapped it like a Christmas present, put his name on it, handed it to him and said, Grandpa, when you're ready to receive the gift, tell me. She sent it home with him. It wasn't but a couple of weeks or maybe it was a month later. He was in a terrible, terrible car accident. The, the man who was driving was killed. He survived, but boy, he was broken up from head to toe. Being up in his 80s, that's a pretty rough way to have to recover. And there he is. Just We didn't think he'd make it through the night. We prayed desperately for that man. Prayed desperately for him. For weeks we prayed for him unconscious, just as broken up as can be. And when he finally came to, and I'm not embellishing, I tell you the truth, when he came to, he turned to his granddaughter and said, give me that box. I want to open that gift. He received the Lord. How many times have you put it to the side? You sat down there, you've heard, it's for you, it's for you, it's for you. A hundred times, no doubt. And you've never received the gift. You say, well, I can't do it now, Pastor. What would, what would the, my family think? What would that person sitting next to me right now think if, if I just all of a sudden decide, you know, I've never known the Lord and maybe it's time I do that. Israel tried with all their ritual to cover up the fact that they needed to be right with the Lord. And God still pleaded with them. And if He's pleading with you today, would you respond? Respond to this gift. Take it for the first time. If you've never received it, take it. That's what this is reminding us of. His body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. Christ did this for you. And He pleads with you. God pleading with you to receive the gift. Would you do that if you've never done it before? Even while we're praying, talk to the Lord about that gift. If you already know Him, may it be the most thankful expression of your heart to talk to Him at this moment. I thank you, Lord, for what you've done, for your mercy that you have given to me. And as soon as we're through praying for a minute, I'm going to have the men come forward and help with this. And we'll remember the Lord, won't we? Heavenly Father, you know every heart in this room. Where they stand with you, where they stand with you. There's nobody hidden from your sight. If there might be one here this morning, might be more, who have never received Christ as Savior. And you're working on their heart, Lord. Only you could do it. Draw them to yourself. Draw them to yourself, even now. Give them a desire to believe. Give them the power to receive. Show them, Lord, the love and the mercy of our great God. 
and extend to them the salvation you promised to those who believe on his name. Lord, for those of us in this congregation who've known you, known you for a long time, your mercy is just as fresh this morning as it's ever been. And we rejoice in it. Thank you for loving us that much. That you would send your son, even knowing our tendency to reject him. You have done a great work to draw us to yourself. And we give you the glory and the honor and the praise for that. And Savior, we thank you for what you have done. Just the power of the cross we sang this morning. The power of the gospel message. The power of of you taking our sins upon yourself that we might be justified in God's sight. Thank you so much for it. We praise you. We rejoice in the work of our God in our lives. And as we remember that at this table today, we praise you. May we approach with thankful hearts today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.